1: Everybody to Nightlight, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We so greatly appreciate it. We want to thank first, um, though, Ken Quiethawk, who did the amazing intro for the show. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have an amazing website, and they practice an ancient tradition that has been going on longer than the printed word, and that's their native storytelling and the, they, expre- they explain their cosmology, their legends, their, their philosophies in, in ways that are passed generation to generation. So please do check it out. It's an amazing website. Tonight I have, again, an amazing author on that I have um, – I'm reading my way through his library, actually. And, <clears throat> and Graham Phillips is with us, and he takes us on an amazing journey through time this evening – he takes us first on a mystifying adventure of paranormal and psychic phenomena to the discovery of a green stone and a sword once owned by Mary Queen of Scots and how they help to dispel an evil that has been awakened and threatens the present. He next will take us on a journey that leads us to the Holy Grail and its travels through the centuries through the ancestors of Joseph of Arimathea and the legendary King Arthur to present to present day. Where it becomes the Chalice of Magdalene. History takes on new light as we explore two of his interesting books. First one we're going to take on is um, The Green Stone, and it's uh, a contemporary with the Enfield Haunting and the Amityville Horror. It is a true story of the supernatural and suppresses them both. It's much more disturbing, many more in, in, inexplicable events occur and the phenomena were witnessed by far more people. It's been described as one of the most remarkable cases of paranormal phenomena ever published. And I have to agree. And uh, to be honest, I, I thought I knew a lot about history in, in Great Britain, but I missed the Green Stone, never heard of it. And this book was quite an awakening, and the way that it came into being and, and um a part of our current reality is, is is a phenomenal story, and I can't wait for Graham to share it. Welcome to the show, Graham.
2: Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And like I said before, I had never heard of the Green Stone uh, until your book. And uh, it's fascinating how it, it came into consciousness and... and um, your story as to how you discovered it and and the purpose um quite enlightening and it's it it takes us back to the 70s and and it's a, it's an amazing chronicle of a journey that that you don't expect people in present day to go through to actually you know on all of these shows that we see you know the the uncovering this and the uncovering that Usually these explorers are going in search of something that they never find. But you found it, which is amazing. You want to kind of share with us how how this happened and where it started?
2: Yeah, well, you say you'd never heard of it before, but when when the original book about it that was written by myself and co-author Martin Keatman in the early 1980s came out... um, it, it, it did quite well at the time, but then, because both of us started writing books of a more, shall I say, sensible kind, without paranormal <laughs> involved, more of a down-to-earth historical books, um, we kind of, like, didn't promote it or really make much of it. And so, consequently, for the last 40 years, it's been virtually forgotten. And the only reason we had the book republished now, this new printed version that you've got there is because it is the 40th anniversary of when these events took place, beginning in the October of 1979. So because the book's called The Green Stone, clearly a story is all about a green stone. I'll just tell you the legend, first of all, that we were looking into. Perhaps I'd better okay. say, firstly, that at the time in 1979, um... I was involved with a magazine called Strange Phenomena, which investigated the paranormal. I was the magazine's editor. I was in my mid 20s. Um, and we also had a group associated with the magazine called Parasearch, which is a paranormal research group. So the two, uh, the magazine and its, its organization, Parasearch, we had an office in an old rambling victorian house in the town of wolverhampton in central england and it was this old house that we did all the research from and we published the magazine and there was i suppose at various times there's about 20 people working for the magazine it did pretty well and it wasn't just the paranormal we were investigating one of the cases was of an old legend that had never been solved, and the story was that Mary Queen of Scots, who was the deposed monarch of Scotland who fled to England in the mid to late 1500s, that um, she had had a ring, a silver ring, and on this ring there was a green stone, and this stone was supposed to, according to legend, have some sort of magical properties now, at one point, um, she was executed in the, uh, in the 1580s because she was the next in line for the British throne, to the English throne of Queen Elizabeth I. And because Mary Queen of Scots had been a Catholic and Elizabeth was Protestant, Elizabeth was persuaded by her Protestant ministers to execute Mary Queen of Scots to make sure that the next heir to the English throne wasn't the Catholic. But after she died, this ring plus this stone on it, um, the, the, many of you probably heard of the Elizabethan occultist, Dr. John Dee. He was the mm-hmm. court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I, and he was also the, uh, perhaps the leading expert on the uh, occult in Europe at the time. Uh, He was later accused of witchcraft and all sorts of things, but in the 1500s, he was quite a respected figure. He was considered to be one of the most learned men in Europe. He got hold of this stone, and he believed that it had some kind of supernatural properties. He he writes about it in his works. Um, He called it, on one occasion, the Philosopher's Stone, which is supposed to be this mystical item that can turn base metals into gold. That's more of an analogy, really. It's supposed to raise spiritual awareness. And it was this stone that had pretty much disappeared from history that we decided to go in search of. And that's how it all began.
1: Wow. So did you have any idea? I I understand that all of her uh, possessions were destroyed so that they couldn't become holy relics. And so... That's absolutely
2: is, right, yeah.
1: So, so yeah, Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah.
2: When, when Mary Queen of Scots was, uh, she was put on trial on trumped-up charges of trying to overthrow <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. And mm-hmm. uh, because she was a Catholic, many Catholic uh, people in England saw her as a martyr upon her death. And so that her possessions didn't become regarded as holy relics by the Catholics the Queen's Chief Minister um, Francis Walsingham ordered that all Mary Queen of Scots's possessions be destroyed but the ring and the stone on it had actually been given to a sympathiser while she was under house arrest before her death so this was one of the few items that had belonged to her that managed to evade Walsingham's grasp. Now, the legend was, I mean, this is semi-historical, people at the time had written about this during the 1600s, that the stone had fallen into the hands of a mystical occult group known as the Order of Me Now, they definitely existed, they had their headquarters at a place called Cannon's Ashby House in the centre of England, And uh, this old building recently, they have discovered a room uh, that had been boarded up for for centuries where this group met, and on the walls are various occult symbols, plus the shields of all those, the heraldic crests of all those people who met there, which included uh, Dr. John Dee, uh, the Catholic sympathizer, Robert Catesby, the famous explorer and statesman, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, and others. And so quite a few... So we know that this group definitely existed. And the story was that they got hold of this stone. But in 1605, one of the members of this group, Robert Catesby, being an ardent Catholic, came upon the idea of this rash plot to kill the new king, James I, who happened by uh-huh. chance, to be Mary Quinn of Scots, son, but he'd been raised as a Protestant, to kill him and all his ministers at the state opening of Parliament on November the 5th, 1605, by putting all these barrel loads of gunpowder beneath the Houses of Parliament and blowing the whole thing up. Now, this was known as the gunpowder plot, and it's often associated with Guy Fawkes, and Guy Fawkes was actually one of Catesby's men who was left behind to light the fuses to the barrels of gunpowder gunpowder that were beneath the Houses of Parliament. But he was caught just in time. He was tortured. He gave away the names of the others. The gunpowder plotters were all rounded up. Many of them killed. Robert Catesby was shot dead, but not before, apparently, he'd managed to hide the stone that had been removed from this ring.
1: Okay. And... um... From from what I could tell, um, on the cover of the book, you have a faceted stone, but the stone itself was not actually faceted, was it? It was more of a cabochon?
2: Yeah, in the, in the paintings of Mary Quinn of Scots wearing this ring, you can see it's an oval thing, uh, about mm. uh, three-quarters of an inch long, judging by the size of her finger, about half an inch wide, rounded on the one side and flat on the other so that it could fit yeah. in a ring. So it wasn't faceted, no. Um, it was just made of some kind of green stone. We didn't know, that. nobody says in the history books what it was made from, except it was green and stone.
1: Wow. So so you have this history, but how, what, what, what fascinated me was the symbols that, that various people not in contact We're getting symbols of where to look and how to look, and and it was amazing because um, though you you had a paranormal magazine and a paranormal office, what was so cool was you were having paranormal things happening all over the place, and you never printed about it because you didn't think people would believe you.
2: Well, we didn't because we thought, well, people are just going to think we're doing that to sell copies of the magazine. Uh, uh-huh. what, when we started looking into this Greenstone we didn't tell anybody, I mean I would say we it was myself and my and, and the chief investigator for Parasearch was a guy called Andrew Collins you may have had him on your show he's written I a have. lot of books about uh, historical mysteries over the years
1: uh-huh.
2: and he's about the same age as me and The two of us primarily were the ones that were looking into this story. We thought It would be fascinating to find a stone that had been associated with the occultist John Dee, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, a stone that was supposed to have supernatural powers of some kind. So it was well worth looking into and trying to find out what we could find out about what had happened to it. But before we told anybody, we hadn't told anybody about it, just the two of us knew. We got a phone call. Going back then, people didn't, wasn't easy to contact everybody like it is now on the internet and mobile phones, you know, cell phones. Uh, we got a phone call at the office from of basically a friend of somebody who worked for the magazine, uh, a man called Alan Beard. And he called us to say that, I and mean, he'd never been uh, in any way psychic before, like at least he hadn't considered himself to be, and in the middle of a conversation he'd been having on the phone to somebody else, he'd suddenly had this, like, daylight, uh, daytime dream, if you like, a vision that appeared before his eyes, where he saw this, like, glowing light that shrank in size and stopped before his eyes until it formed the shape of a old green stone mounted on a silver ring. That's what he said. He said, <laughs> I've just had this vision of a a stone on a a green stone and a silver ring. And I I think you should go and find it. And we thought, what? There is no way (laughs) he could have known we were looking into this. So, so that was the, that was the first thing there were a number, there's a number of other people. I won't go into all the details who also began to contact the magazine, um, having had various, shall we call them psychic visions or, and also dreams about, a stone that we must be looking for and that it was very important that we should find it. So this kind of put a whole new dimension on the thing. First of all, we were it was fascinating that we should be doing an investigation into a lost, into a lost historic relic, but even mm-hmm. more weird that we should be getting people having psychic messages that we should do just this. Well,
1: it, it led you to looking for Packington's house um, it's uh, a Havington Hall,
2: right? A Tudor Manor House? Yeah. It's, were... um, the, the, the the story that we could find out about the, the legend associated with the stone was that before Robert Catesby, the gunpowder plotter, who had had the stone at one point, before he was shot dead by the authorities for trying to blow up the king in the gunpowder plot, um He handed it on to another Catholic sympathiser, a man by the name of Humphrey Packington, who lived Mm -hmm. at an old Tudor manor, as you rightly said, called Harvington Hall, which is around about 20 miles away from where we were actually based in Wolverhampton in central England. So the story was that Packington had had this stone secreted, hidden somewhere, and then he'd left a series of clues in his home at Harvington Hall to lead some future sympathiser, because at this point everybody is being rounded up and put to death. So nobody knew if there'd be anybody around to, to, to get this thing. And if Packington himself had been killed, then that would have been the end of it. So he hid the stone and apparently supposedly left a series of clues in some way at Harvington Hall to lead to its whereabouts. Um, Now that's as far as we knew that's, no people who had looked into this possibility had never found anything at harvingdon hall that seemed to be any kind of clues that could lead to the whereabouts of the stone but myself and andrew collins decided to go there to see if we could perhaps notice something that others hadn't before and what was astonishing when we got there it's, it's open to the public now and it's been restored as to how it was um around the year 1600 and we went inside this big old rambling Tudor manor. And when we got there, we asked, is there anything unusual being found here? Is there anything strange painted, you know, any anything in the place that could be some kind of clues to lead to some hidden artifact? And the first thing that the curator told us, um, she said, well, funny you should mention that. Not long ago, when the building was being renovated, we discovered that behind oak panelling on on an upstairs corridor that had been sealed up for, getting on for 400 years, they discovered, when they removed the panelling, a a painting that went all along one wall, a wall mural. And she said, it's really weird, and that, we don't know, it looks very, the, 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 the imagery is very symbolic. It dates from the period of Humphrey Packington, around 1605, and it had been deliberately boarded up in, during Packington's time. So if anything is a series of clues that might lead to where something is, that's it.
1: Wow. And so from the painting, you were able to gather clues as to where your journey would take you?
2: Yeah, well at first we looked at this. The paintings <clears throat> basically were like one big wall painting and it was known as the Nine Worthies. This was written on it somewhere. And it was so called because it depicted nine heroic figures from history and legend. Um there was um, for example, various knights from the Crusades. Um and there was also um figures such as uh, biblical characters like Samson. But the central figure of the whole Nine Worthies mural was a, a youthful King Arthur wielding Excalibur. And behind him was drawn a hill. And on this hill were gathered Arthur's knights. Now, cutting a long story short, we decided that this has got to be a clue lead to where the stone was and the reason we thought this is because in one or two of the references to this green stone historically people had said that the legend was that the stone was once set in the hilt of King Arthur's sword Excalibur. Well there it was at the middle of this painting a depiction of Excalibur Arthur wielding it so we thought if there's anything this is the clue and Remember I said that behind Arthur, there was a hill drawn and these knights were gathered on it. And eventually we realised that this could relate to a feature on the landscape just a couple of miles from Harvington Hall, where there is a hill called Knight's Hill. And what was more astonishing is that just below this hill, Knight's Hill, there are two lakes that uh, go narrow in the middle where a stream joins the two of them and over that stream there is an old footbridge dating from the late 1500s so it was there in Packington's time and this old footbridge is known locally as Arthur's Bridge so you've got Arthur's Bridge below Knight's Hill and at the centre of this painting you've got King Arthur and behind him is Knight's on a hill so we thought Surely this bridge is where we've got to look.
1: Wow. And you had the help of, of a spiritual lady as well who was um, getting messages as, as well. I, I forget how you, you got connected to her, but she, she seemed to be able to tap into the journey that you were on and, and give you messages along with her daughter, which was really quite phenomenal.
2: Yeah, this is quite... This lady, uh, Marion Sunderland, um, we got to know her because her daughter, Gaynor, had uh, had witnessed a UFO. And uh, she'd been interviewed for the magazine. And we only knew of her through that. We hadn't really kept in touch. She had absolutely no idea what we were doing, that we were searching for this green stone or following clues or anything. We We hadn't been in touch with her. But just before we actually set off to go to uh, to Knight's Hill and the bridge below it, um, just before we set off from the headquarters, um, she phoned us to say she was sure that we were actually looking for a sword to start off with that would eventually lead us to the stone, <clears throat> which was interesting. The fact she didn't yeah. mention a sword at all was weird because we had just seen this sword in this painting Arthur's Excalibur so we thought wow you know again like Alan Beard she had somehow managed to tune into this uh, um, whatever, it, whatever it was in her case she, was, she hadn't had a, a waking vision she'd actually had this in a very lucid dream she felt compelled to phone and tell us about And in this dream, she'd seen what she said was a short sword lying on top of a stone. And she said that she knew we'd be close to finding this because when she saw this vision, she could smell this overwhelming um, smell of rotting vegetation. And she said, when you smell that, you'll you'll be close to finding the sword. So we thought... Ooh, that, that that is weird. And she said it. Oh, she also had seen a big lake. And she said the sword was overlooking a lake. And she had no idea that we were just setting off for this lake, below Knight's Hill. But again, within a few minutes of Marion Sunderman contacting us, Alan Beard called again to tell us that he'd had a. I think it was a dream in this case. He'd had a. No, he had, No, it wasn't. It was. He was going to try and he was trying to tune in to see if he could pick up more about this green stone because after he told us about his vision, we informed him what we were doing. And he was he was trying to write down with pen and paper any ideas that came into his mind. And he said he suddenly heard behind his head like snatches of a conversation um, and people referring to um, a, a bridge and also to... Um, he said that... I think he saw or he heard mention of a holly bush. And he said to us, he was convinced that we were looking for something. And when we found it, there would be a holly bush there right next to it. And he also said, I think you're looking for a sword at this moment, a sword that will lead you to the stone. And at this point, Marion Sunderland and Alan Beard didn't know each other. They lived in different parts of the country. There wasn't the Internet now, like everyone can be in touch Uh, There was no way that they could have colluded on this. And so two separate people had these um, visions, if you like, or psychic impressions, that we were looking for a sword and that the sword would lead us to the stone. So, of course, when Andrew and I set off for the pool below Knight's Hill, we were pretty excited. And, in fact, we were so excited to get there, we didn't even wait for the next day. We set off at night. (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, you've gotten such such wonderful reinforcement. You know, I I don't think I could have held myself back either. And of course, you know, landscape changes a little bit over time because I, I know when you did get to uh, the lake and the bridge, the bridge had been reconstructed, and that confused you a little bit. Except that there were foundational stones that did date back to the time frame of of uh, you know that you were looking for. Um, and how did, you, how did you actually come upon which side of the bridge to look at, and, you know, w- were there hints of some sort given in, through dreams or, or psychic messages that, that gave you an indication? You weren't going to dismantle the whole damn bridge, so, you know, how did you know where exactly to look? <laughs>
2: Well, when we got there, it was dark, so it's pretty. You know, we were, we just had flashlights, so we would you know, we examined the bridge. And as you said, the central part of it had probably been reconstructed over time, but the foundations to either side of the bridge were clearly old. They they hadn't changed. I suppose if I was going to hide something, I'd hide it in a in 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 a, in a structure that wouldn't change over the years. Um, perhaps an old footbridge, a church, something like this. So it kind of made sense that maybe somebody would hide something in the foundations behind these large stones that, uh, that made it up. But what decided us where to actually look is that in the painting of the Nine Worthies at Harvington Hall that depicted Arthur with the knights behind him, he is standing and the hill with the knights on is behind him and to his left. Now, if you stood on the bridge... And had Knight's Hill in the same position behind you and to your left, you would be overlooking the larger of the two lakes. So we stood on the bridge, looked out onto the lake from that direction. And the Arthur figure is looking down and to his left. So it gave us w- one area of the bridge in which to look. You know, you've got four lots of foundation stones either side of either side of the bridge. But we'd actually, you know, pinned down which one which wall if you like we should be looking at the one overlooking the bridge to the left hand side as you stand overlooking the main lake then of course the question is okay there's quite a lot of stones there which one do we look behind if it is hidden behind a stone because Marian remember had had this image of a of a sword lying on a stone so I think that's what we considered it was probably behind a stone Uh, Uh and we eventually worked on the idea of nine stones along nine stones down you couldn't go nine stones down nine stones up because the bridge support bends it's a bit difficult to explain without actually showing you an image of it but nine along and nine down was the only thing that worked using the the number nine so we'd actually got down to the position nine stones along nine stones down and the stone in question had clearly been there for centuries undisturbed. It was overgrown with brambles and all sorts of things, and it was all sort of um, covered over with moss and stuff. So, you know, it hadn't been disturbed. And we started to sort of move the, uh, the moss away and try and get rid of a bit of the, uh, the cement that was holding it in place. Um, and while we were doing this, Andy suddenly said to me, he says, Can you smell that? And there was this overpowering smell of rotting vegetation all around because it was pretty damp nearby, and there was all this mouldy old weed and stuff. And Marion had said, we would know we were in the right place because of this overwhelming smell of rotting vegetation. And the other thing that was incredible is, directly above us was this huge holly bush. And Alan Beard had said, a holly bush had stood above where we were supposed to be looking So the excitement was mounting. And when we eventually removed this stone and shot, we found there was a small alcove behind it, a recess. Uh, A stone kind of chamber had been, little stone kind of uh, chamber had been created behind that particular block. And when we moved the stone out of the way and shone the flashlight inside, we could clearly see that there was something lying flat on this stone behind it something about 18 inches long that you could tell by the shape of it was some sort of sh- um, short sword or long dagger, which is exactly what we told we were told we'd find. And, I mean, I remember looking at it and thinking, hold on, I'm, this is, you know, this is my imagination. I've been thinking about swords <laughs> and so forth. And yeah. Now I'm, it's <clears> dark. And well, I know, kind you, of looked you, away, and, and Andy was looking at me, and he he was saying... Is that what I think it is? Yeah.
1: But, you know, if you're two young young guys in your 20s in the dead of night, trespassing on private property. Did the, the element of we could be arrested for trespassing or taking apart a bridge? I mean, did that ever occur to you? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. I, think, I don't think we cared. I mean, certainly at this point, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, fate seems to be guiding us to find this thing. So any thought that, um, that, that, any, that, that, that something as, as as mediocre as the local landowner owner or the police were going to stop us, I mean, it didn't cross our minds, I don't think. But when we removed, wow. Andy was the first person to touch it, but when we removed this item, it was clearly... Uh, a, 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 a short sword or long dagger, as I say, about eighteen inches long, with a two-inch cross guard. But it was covered in years of silt and sediment, all this hardened, crusty uh, layer all round it. Now, yeah. eventually, we, ha- we, we 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 took it away. We actually got away from the place as quickly as possible. I don't know why <laughs> yeah. we thought anything horrible would happen to us, but it was dark. Uh, <laughs> you know? um, but the st- <clears throat> the sword was eventually taken to the Grosvenor Museum in the city of Chester in in in, in central England. Uh, where they have a department that specialises in antiquities from the period that we were dealing with around 1600. And it was the sword was cleaned up, and eventually it was uh, this. It was made of a, a single casting of steel and as i say it was about 18 inches long with a two inch cross guard but okay at at this until this point i was thinking well we found a sword but it isn't the stone i mean i know marion and 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 alan had said that we should be looking we were looking for a sword and their psychic stuff was absolutely right but maybe just possibly the Maybe, I don't know, ancient stonemasons, old stonemasons used to put swords in bridges as some kind of good luck thing or something. Maybe this wasn't so weird. Um, I know, I was just trying to rationalize it. But when it was cleaned up, the museum immediately identified on the cross guard was the embossed um, was a kind of a, a, a design. And they uh, immediately identified it as the personal monogram of Mary, Queen of Scots. In other words, her coat of arms. And wow. we were told that the Green Stone had belonged. We knew the Green Stone had belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. And here was a sword with Mary, Queen of Scots's monogram on it. So there could be really no doubt, but the real clincher is remember that the stone had once belonged to this organisation called The Order of Me and I, led by John Dee. Mm-hmm. Along the blade were inscribed three words in Elizabethan spelling, Mianiah for Mary. And that was the clincher. There was no doubt we had followed clues and solved uh, almost 400 year old mystery, helped by psychic messages. And as far as I know, that was the first time anything like that had ever happened.
1: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. But. But you hadn't discovered the stone yet, so how did you get around to discovering the stone?
2: Well, how we found the stone is really quite a long story involving all sorts of weirdness. But to give you a potted version of it, okay. um, somebody, somebody suggested that if maybe the sword would be able to lead us somewhere, if somebody held it, they may be able to get some kind of psychic impression off the sword that would lead us to where the stone was. Uh, Marian's daughter, Jaina, actually, seemed to know that we'd found a sword. I seem to remember she had a dream that we'd found it without ever being told, and she wanted to go to the bridge with it. And she went to the bridge and held the sword and kind of used it almost like a divining rod and pointed in a certain direction. And she said, if you go over there a couple of miles, you'll find what you're looking for. So it kind of started like that. Um, meanwhile, myself and Andrew were looking into what the word me and I actually meant. Why had the group been called the Order of Me and I? What did me and I mean? Well, cutting a long story short, the word me and I actually means swan in early Greek. And it was the name of a kingdom in ancient Greece, that had been the birthplace of Western occultism, according to many experts. So you've got this birthplace of Western occultism known as Mianaya, which also means a swan. And about two two or three miles away from the bridge, where Gaynor had pointed with this sword, there was a meander, a bend in the River Avon, called the Swan's Neck. And Gainer had also had a dream one night in which she, um, was, she saw a swan flying, and around the swan's neck was a pouch, and she believed that the green stone was in the pouch. So she, knowing nothing about what we were doing at this point, said she thinks the stone is around the swan's neck, but she doesn't know what that means. Well, we had independently worked out that this bend in the River Avon, the swan's neck, maybe where they'd actually hidden the green stone. And because the the, the wording along the blade was me and I for Mary, swan, and then you've got Mary, Mary Queen of Scots as insignia was a swan. So putting all that together, if you were just doing it without psychic messages, you could probably interpret the sword to mean think about Mary, think about her, the swan, think about the swan, me and I and then you'll find where the stone is. And consequently, nearby the river, the bend in the River Avon called the Swan's Neck, which was, we've looked on old maps and it was called that right back to Elizabethan times. Um, oh, yeah. So we were getting both psychic messages and uh, interpreting the um, historical uh, enigma at the same time. And Marion finally, again, like she'd had a dream about the saw being on a slab and a rotting smell of vegetation and a lake she had a a, a dream of a a river, and beside the river, there there was this avenue of of, of trees, poplar trees. And when we got to the Swan's Neck, running right beside it was an avenue of trees, just as Marion described. And it was at the end of this avenue of trees that there was this mound. And when we dug down inside this mound, about two to three feet down, the spade hit something, and it was metal. And when it was taken out it was found to be a brass casket, um, heavy brass casket about uh, about eight inches long, four inches wide, four inches deep. Uh, Again, once again, it was all covered up in silt and sediment. But when it was cleaned up and when it was opened, astonishingly, I mean, before I tell you what was inside, when that casket was eventually examined by the Grosvenor Museum, they identified it as dating from the exact period of Mary Queen of Scots. So it was clearly old enough and may even have belonged to her. Inside, there was a small green stone, exactly matching the depictions of the green stone in paintings of Mary Queen of Scots's ring. It was about three-quarters of an inch long, about half an inch wide, oval on the one side, flat on the other as if it had once been put in a ring and when it was examined it was found to have been made from simple jade so whether it had supernatural powers or not, who (laughs) knows but supernatural activity if you like, had led us to find it and we'd solved uh, a mystery that remained unsolved for over three centuries
1: well yeah but what I found spectacular was after you found it, I mean that for most, would be the end of the story, but it's not, because around that stone, a tremendous amount of paranormal activity took place in your office. Um, That's right.
2: I mean, at first, we went we didn't. When these strange things started to happen at the office, we didn't associate it with the green stone. Um, we, when there were these weird things started to happen, I think we thought that it was probably due to the fact that there was a lot of us there all interested in the paranormal working in this big old Victorian house. Um, We'd had people there, psychics and mediums, that we'd done tests with. So they'd been there communing with whatever they communed with. We'd held seances and done Ouija board sessions just to see what happened. And I think the general consensus was when people started to think there's something weird going on, that it might have been to do with that. Nobody initially yeah. associated it with the green stone. But the first thing that happened that was weird is we started getting electric shocks from various appliances in the house. Um, fridge, cooker, things like this. Um, and okay, we put that down as something wrong with the wiring. We called in the, electrical, the electricity company who said that they couldn't find anything wrong. But then other things happened. Lights kept dimming. Bulbs blew far more frequently than we should expect. And this just kept going, um, uh, regardless of the fact that the electric company kept being called in, checking the place and saying there was nothing wrong. But what got really weird is that one night, just as it was getting dark, now this was happening, this is around about 40 years ago now. So it's yeah, at like, it's, it's winter time. So it gets dark in this country by five o'clock. And just as it was getting dark, there was, I don't know, maybe 15 of us in the offices, people typing away for the, you know, getting a new, new magazine ready. And suddenly there was this like gray incense-smelling smoke starting to fill the building. Now, when I saw it in the front office, I just thought it was in that room. But it turned out later that, in various rooms in the house the smoke started appearing at the same time and it appeared behind closed doors and even in closets uniformly throughout the place and we was we thought what what we were checking all the, the rooms to see if there was a fire anywhere and after about 5 to 10 minutes it kind of dissipated uniformly throughout the building as as quickly as it had come well that was really odd but we said to the electric company emergency there's something going on, the wiring's burning or something, they checked the whole place, they were there for a whole day and no one could find anything that could account for what was going on but if that was just a one-off maybe one could put it down to some strange anomaly with the electrical system but the next night at the same time, just as it got dark it happened again and it kept happening every night just as it got dark for over a week and we got people in where, you know, we, we t- contacted other people that we knew and said, look, come around, witness this for yourself. See if you can find an explanation for it. And dozens of people saw this smoke appearing and no one could explain where it was coming from and, and what was the cause. And eventually a, a TV sh- camera crew from the local TV station came along and they even managed to film it. Now, Back in those days, you didn't, everybody didn't have cameras like you do today on your phone uh, or anything. I didn't even have um, VHS big cameras in those days. So the fact that it was actually filmed by a professional TV camera crew was really something. So at this point, the story broke, and it was on the TV and in all the local newspapers, and it really became quite, um, quite a sensation. And this was around about the same time as the amateur stuff was happening in New York.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, some of the, some of the things that happened is, that were are quite profound. I mean, one of the members of your team <clears throat> slept overnight there, and his sleeping bag spontaneously combusted. I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty strange.
2: Well, Especially, yeah, he, he stayed over because these electrical anomalies are getting more and more weird. And... Uh, and he slept overnight there to, to see if he could... That was Andrew Collins, the, the guy that was with him yeah. when we found the sword. And he slept overnight, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and there were flames leaping from his sleeping bag. I mean, there was no way he hadn't been smoking. I don't think he smoked. Um, there was no explanation of how it happened. He managed incredibly to get out of his sleeping bag without being hurt. And I remember that that week in the local newspaper, the front page, the, the, the cover of the local newspaper, had a picture of a bemused looking Andy Collins holding up this burnt sleeping bag um, <laughs> with the word strange happenings above his head. Um, so, I mean, that was... But things gradually started to sort of pick up, You know the momentum picked up. I mean, until this point, it had all been electrical things and stuff associated with smoke or fire. But then the strange noises began... Uh, I have to mention at this point that the electrical company, when they ha- saw this this um, newspaper coverage of smoke appearing and, 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 and fires breaking out, and so well, at least the fire that burnt Andrew Collins' sleeping bag, is they literally cut our electricity off. They said, we can't understand what's causing it, but this is dangerous. They thought it's got to be some electrical problem. So they cut yeah. us off. So suddenly we had a magazine to run and no electricity so we had to move the headquarters elsewhere but there was still like a year remaining on the lease and we could have complained to the landlord and said right we want our money back you know but we thought well hold on we seem to have we're in a paranormal research group and we seem to have some kind of poltergeist phenomenon going on on our Mm -hmm. quite literally on our own doorstep so we thought (laughs) well let's keep the place and let's go back there and, in see, and investigate it and see what's going on. And when, I mean, people started hearing strange noises like bumps, bangings. Um, there was this strange singing that I heard myself. There was like three of us there and we all heard it, like a strange a woman's voice, like singing somewhere in the distance. And we couldn't figure out where it was. It was certainly nowhere outside. Um, there was like breathing sounds. But then... Um, the, the, the phenomena kind of took a, a kind of new dimension when Martin Keatman, the guy I eventually wrote the book with, who was a student at the time working with the magazine part-time, he was helping to move stuff out when we were, you know, having to get out of the building. And mm-hmm. he was on his own in the front office, and he, was, he, he said that his attention was drawn to a radio that had been on, the, on, on, on a shelf above the fireplace, And as he looked at it, as he was watching it, it rose into the air, uh, arced over some speakers for a stereo next to it, and then just crashed to the floor while he was watching it. I think a few of us thought, no, he'd broken it, and and he was just making up excuses, until when I was walking down a corridor and a huge great box of magazines flew past my head and crashed into a door, and there was no one else in the building. And then the workmen, people who knew nothing about, well maybe they'd read about it in the newspapers but as far as I know they knew nothing about it workmen who were in the building um, removal people moving the stuff out, started saying oh we're not going back in there anymore, one guy had seen a chair move on its own an office chair, one of those typing chairs on wheels, move across a room Um, somebody else had seen something fly across um, in the bathroom I think it was uh, doors opened and closed on their own I mean your typical poltergeist phenomena and we started to get people to come there to witness it to log this all down um, and I think there was something like we had 38 separate witnesses to things moving on their own let alone all this other stuff the electrical anomalies and the noises so we really were at the, at the centre of some bizarre poltergeist activity
1: well, ultimately, a, a medium told you that the greenstone was responsible for the events and that it <clears> had <throat> opened some kind of a a, um, a rift in in the energetic field and that there was this energy coming through it and gave you directions as to how to to fight this energy that was invading your space so to speak and if you didn't do this sort of ritual that it was going to spread it was going to spread you know beyond that, that particular space
2: yeah we. I mean so, again until this point we, we didn't associate any of this stuff with the Greenstone mainly because the Greenstone had been at the, the headquarters in Wolverhampton but by this time it had been moved out with everything else Somewhere else, uh-huh. but this stuff was still going on where we were, but not at this new place. So you know that's why we didn't think of anything to do with the stone. But the things just got stranger. People started seeing apparitions. Um, myself and a number of others all witnessed together what can only be described as a the appearance of a an, a woman who looked like an ancient Egyptian princess. I mean, what's she doing in a in a Victorian <laughs> house? Uh, the where. <laughs> Figures that seemed to be in Victorian clothes, but there were also characters there that seemed to be dressed in contemporary clothing from the 19, late 1970s. That people would be then saying, Who's that guy waiting in the front room for you? Is he somebody come to see you? And we'd go there, there'd be nobody there. And on one occasion, uh, two people saw um, a woman dressed in completely normal clothes as if she was from 1979 just walk across an office and then straight through the wall. Uh, okay. I mean, these were being witnessed by multiple people at the same time. Not just one person saying, well, oh, I've, got, I've got the psychic impressor on. People were saying, I wish we had the kind of technology we have now with phone cameras and everything, because we could have got all this filmed. As it was, I mean, we had cameras there, but, you know, those days you had to develop stuff and, you, you know, the camera clicked off and, and you couldn't see it straight away anyway. So you didn't know whether you would got anything. And by the time things were, somebody grabbed a camera, whatever was going on, had finished. So, you know, we couldn't have cameras there going all the time like you might have today. So, but we had a tremendous amount of witnesses. And it was then that it was Marian Sunderland again, the same lady who had told us about the where we would find the sword on a on a on a stone slab and the rotting vegetation and had had the dream about the uh, the avenue of trees had been right up, you know where the stone was and where the sword was. She said that she had a dream or had the impression I can't quite remember what it was now, but she felt very strongly that the stone itself was responsible. But the reason it wasn't happening anywhere else was when we brought the stone back to the the Oaks Crescent, that's the name of the road it was in, the Oaks Crescent headquarters in Wolverhampton, um, that it had somehow opened, as you put it, some kind of preternatural rift that was not only kind of causing paranormal and electrical phenomena, it was also kind of opening sort of half-doorways to the past, and not only the past, but alternative versions of the present, which kind of seemed to make sense of people seeing ghostly images of people who looked to be from contemporary times. But when we started getting the, 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 the actual high point of all this is when one time we came back to the office late one night, all in darkness, as I say, and we found this blue gelatinous substance beginning to ooze from the walls. And um, during the period when the place was unoccupied, uh, been a couple of months, well, you'd expect some kind of rot to start taking place, but the walls were all going black with, uh, with this mildew fungus stuff. Um, pipes burst, uh, rusted and burst. Uh, ceilings collapsed. Plaster fell from the walls. I mean, literally, it was like the place was, had been abandoned for years, and it was as if time inside the building was passing at an accelerated rate And Marion said that we'd opened up some kind of preternatural rift, all sorts of weirdness was going on, and it had been opened by the stone. It was no good now um, saying, well, the stone isn't any longer here. This rift had been opened in the the Oaks Crescent headquarters as far as she was concerned. And she said the only way to stop it, and if it isn't stopped, as you mentioned yourself earlier, um, if it isn't stopped, she believed that it would spread beyond the confines of of the headquarters, and in fact, people next door started claiming to have weird things happen in their houses, and people in in, in front of the building had seen apparitions, like a, a Victorian figure standing in the middle of the street. So it did seem to be spreading. So, okay, Marian's idea might have sounded a bit weird, but she'd been right about the sword and the stone before, And it certainly fitted the weirdness of what was going on in the house. And she said that what we should do is to take the stone to what she called uh, venerated ground or hallowed ground. And a place was decided on a few miles away from Wolverhampton, where the house was, there was this old ruined priory. Um, an old ruined monastic building called White lady 's Priory. It was in the middle of nowhere and you could just go up to it. it just had these it had no roof on it and it was just like ruined walls and I think somebody has suggested that the stone might have been made there at some point i can 't remember quite why that place was chosen, but Marion thought it was okay and that we should go there now the for some reason she felt that we had to do whatever we were going to do with the stone at 9.30 at night if I remember rightly it had something to do with the position of the moon or something but when we got there that we found that just beyond the the walls of the priory about 50 yards away there was this small wood and in the middle of this wood is what we discovered was an ancient burial mound She said that we should place the stone on top of that mound and retreat into the safety of the priory about 50 yards away. So we did that. We waited until it got dark and um, till half past nine, the time when she said that the power of the stone would be discharged. And there was 10 of us there and two or three people there had never witnessed anything paranormal in their life, I think. Two of the guys were just friends of somebody, were just there to make up the numbers, if I remember rightly. Uh, one of them was a horticultural officer for the local county, so um, a pretty good witness. There was a guy there who was a local councillor. You're not just talking about a bunch of hippies. I mean, somebody like yeah. myself and Andy might have been 25-year-old guys who people would say, oh, yeah, can you believe them? But a lot of these people were many years older than us and from completely different walks of life. And at 9.30, there suddenly, it was a dark, we were looking across back towards the darkness surrounding the trees um, through an archway in the walls around the ruin pri- Priory. And suddenly, there was these most unearthly noises, like a sort of squawking sound. But as Mike Ratcliffe, who had been the horticultural officer uh, that was with us, an expert on what goes on in the countryside, as he said, no birds or animals in the natural world ever made noises like those. Um, And this awful screeching sound happened, and shortly afterwards there was these five bright flashes followed in quick succession from within the wood. Really bright, they lit up the whole area around about. And then, what can only be described as five orbs or balls of light, each maybe three or four feet across, rose into the air above the trees, I don't know, 30 or 40 feet into the air, fused as one, so it was one big shining orb of light about, I don't know, eight feet across, which slowly started coming towards us before exploding with an almighty flash and an ear-shattering bang, and then it all went dark and quiet, and we just fled, we just ran for it back to the car. Yeah. I remember when we were running back towards the car, we were looking back towards these trees and there was nothing as if nothing had happened and we just got away from the place as quickly as we could and it wasn't until the next day we went back and found the stone there on the mound just as it had been. And, but since that moment, I mean as strange as it was, it really did seem that the power of the stone had been discharged because nothing else weird happened in the <coughs> the, the, the house that we'd been using as the headquarters. And in fact, it remained empty for a couple of years, but it was eventually renovated and converted into apartments. And as far as I know, nothing weird has ever happened there since. And nothing well, weird I, has happened surrounding the stone.
1: I, I think one of the most fascinating parts of your book, which, you know, left, every, left me hanging, was that you were speaking to um, her daughter, um, and Gaylor, And I think somebody said to her, well, this journey is over, you know, everything is tied up. And she looked at you and she said, yes, it is, for some.
2: She said, said, I think her words were, for some of us, perhaps. And then she looked at me, well, I'm doing it all again now. I mean, I'm investigating the whole thing again now and many other things that have happened since. But those have never been published yet. So... For some, it was. That was it. In fact, one guy was so scared, he had to go to the doctors and was on tranquilizers for months. Oh,
1: my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think one thing about everything you you do and, and write, and I've read, I think, about five of your books by now, you are an amazing investigator, and what I find so fascinating is you are unique in, in those who are, investigating ancient everything in that you always seem to find what you're looking for and um i i think the the other book that that we were going to talk about is the chalice of magdalene and um and and again not only did you explain what the chalice was or the possibility of it but you did find it and and
0: yes now think... <laughs>
2: Yes, I mean, I have found or located a number of artifacts over the years. In fact, I remember one point that um, when the Indiana Jones films, were, all the four of them were made, and they were all put together in a box set for a DVD box set, as it was there, um, the Lucas Films wanted to do a, 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 a bonus disc to go in the set about people who had really looked for these various artefacts. And they actually included me as one of the people who actually went searching for artefacts like Indiana Jones. And George Lucas himself described me as a real-life Indiana Jones. So that's quite a a compliment, I think.
1: Well, oh, gosh, yeah. And, I mean, of all the books that you've written, I think my favourite is The Wisdom Keepers. But The Chalice of Magdalene... I, I learned a lot about it because when you go into um, the chalice and throughout history and and in the Arthurian um, histories as well, it, it wasn't, you know, everybody thinks that the chalice is one thing, and, and it turns out it, it was quite possibly two if not three different things that were called the chalice that people searched for
2: yeah and, it's basically know, with, to do with yeah it's basically to do with the, the, the holy grail um, the the story of the Holy grail is that we, that most people know is that it is supposed to have be been the cup used by Jesus at the last Supper, and that was the last meal he enjoyed with his disciples before he was crucified and during the crucifixion, one of his followers a man called Joseph of Arimathea, obtained this cup that Jesus had used at the Last Supper to collect a few drops of Christ's blood as he was on the cross. And then, after Jesus' death and the disciples started teaching and the Christians became persecuted, Joseph of Arimathea left Palestine and travelled to Britain, ultimately, now, that might sound strange, but no, it wasn't really. There was roads going all the way from everywhere in the Roman Empire right up to the English Channel. And trade was common between Britain, unconquered by the Romans at this point, and the rest of the Roman Empire. So, and in fact, a lot of persecuted people from the Roman Empire, whether they were per- persecuted on religious or political grounds or just fugitives from the law, fled to Britain. Uh, and settled here, it was quite, it was a place to to flee to, and in fact this is one of the reasons why the Romans a few years later decided to conquer the place, because it was an outlaw for, it was a, a, a haven for outlaws, so the story goes, and this isn't in the Bible but the early Christian tradition is that Joseph of Arimathea came to Britain, founded an early Christian community here, around about the year 40 AD, and he brought with him this cup that had once held Jesus' blood and that because it had held Jesus' blood, it had astonishing curative properties Uh, if you drank from it, you could be cured from all manner of ills, or in some stories even become immortal now the story is that Joseph of Arimathea before he died, he hid this cup and in later medieval legends, this same cup, called the Holy Grail Grail simply means really uh, something that contains the blood of a saint uh, or the blood of Christ in this case. Um, So this holy grail, this this cup, this cup that Jesus had used at the Last Supper, which I assume if he had just been a simple carpenter in first century Judea, it would have been a simple stone or wooden cup that he was just drinking out of. It wouldn't have been the kind of elaborate gold and silver jewel-encrusted chalice that the writers of the Middle Ages portray it as being. But anyway, the story of King Arthur written during the Middle Ages is that when Arthur falls ill, Merlin sends his knights out on a quest to discover the Holy Grail because it's the only thing that can cure him. And one of them, Sir Percival eventually finds it at a, at a place called the white castle in the white town and we're not told exactly where this is we're just given that description and it's brought back arthur drinks from it he's cured and then um merlin hides the grail somewhere else or hands gives it to a uh, takes it back to the white castle where it is then kept secret by a family who passed it on from generation to generation uh, as guardians of the Grail. Now, that's uh-huh. the story that most people know. In, when Dan Brown's book came out um, about uh, the Da Vinci Code, his story, his take on it was basically that the Holy Grail wasn't actually an item but a theme. In other words, the Holy Grail didn't represent an item that contained Jesus' blood, but it was a a symbol for Jesus' bloodline. And in the Da Vinci Code story, it is Jesus marries his uh, female follower, Mary Magdalene, they have children, and their descendants still survive today, and the Holy Grail represents this bloodline. Well, that's pretty much a modern idea. But Going right back, the story of the Grail wasn't anything to do with Joseph of Arimathea or the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper. It was an altogether different chalice, something which is also known as the Chalice of Magdalene or the Cup of Mary Magdalene. Now, as I said, Mary Magdalene was a female follower of Jesus, and she's mentioned in the Bible she is also the first person to see the risen Christ when he's uh, put in the tomb after the crucifixion. The next morning, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to find the stone rolled away, and she sees Jesus in the garden. And this isn't in the Gospels, but this is mentioned in early Christian tradition. Mary is going to the... To, uh, what the Bible tells us that she goes to the tomb in order to anoint the body with spikenard, which was a um, a sacred scent. And she took this in a small uh, vessel, a small pot or cup. And when she got to the tomb and found Jesus risen, according to the legend, she then uses this same cup to collect a few drops of Jesus's blood from the wounds in his hands. Um, And this vessel, this cup of mary magdalene this chalice of magdalene it's sometimes called becomes imbued with curative properties and if you drink from it you can become cured of all ills and so forth exactly the same story that's later applied to the cup of the last supper and joseph of arimathea but in this earlier story mary magdalene is the one who flees palestine and eventually comes to britain and brings this cup with her. Now, this is a small scent jar. It's actually described in the Bible, the, the cup she takes to the tomb, as being, they call it an alabastrum. It is a small cup made of green onyx or alabaster, um, and it's got a top to it. Um, I always used to wonder about the story of Joseph of Arimathea's cup and him bringing a, uh, the blood of Christ to Britain, I mean, what's he doing? Is it swilling around in this cup? I mean, you know, even if it dries out, I mean, it's got no top to it. But in the Mary Magdalene story, her cup is a scent jar, so it does have a top to it. So the story is, she brings it to Britain. And in the earliest stories of King Arthur, that precede the ones that refer to the cup of the Last Supper being the Holy Grail, it is the chalice of magdalene which is the holy grail now why should they then swap that story of the holy grail that Arthur see, arthur's knights seek uh being the chalice of magdalene to being the uh, cup of jesus and the last supper well the middle ages became a time of unprecedented um misogynism women's the the the, 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 the what the church was actually debating whether women had souls yet alone <laughs> having a woman being involved at the centre of a major story about Jesus and being the guardian of his blood and so forth. So Mary Magdalene was kicked out, Joseph of Arimathea was brought in because he's another character mentioned in the Bible and it's Jesus's cup of the Last Supper, not a woman's scent jar which is so holy. So This is the cup that seems to have been the original Holy Grail. And if you actually look at many paintings over the years, from medieval times right up until the the 20th century, whenever Mary Magdalene is painted, she is shown as holding this cup. Um, The the, the, the depictions of it become ever more elaborate. It ends up sometimes as being a jewel-encrusted chalice. But the earliest pictures really just show it as quite a small Simple stone cup with a um, uh, with a with a stem and a lid to it, and as this was the original Holy Grail, this was the cup that I thought I'm going to go searching for. At least I doubt if I'll find it, but I would like to find out what is supposed to have happened to it and where it's supposed to have ended up.
1: Well, what's phenomenal is you did. I mean, where did you begin? I mean, you know, it's. 2000 years how did you begin well what i even...
2: um, i thought what i'll do is start at the beginning people who'd actually been searching for the holy grail in the past or to search about its legend as to where it might have ended up have very often concentrated on the southwest of england uh, particularly at a place called glastonbury that's where they have the uh, the rock festival every year, the kind of English version of uh, repeating Woodstock. Um, uh-huh. But it's a place that's sort of like uh, hippies descended upon it in the, uh, the 1960s on what the uh, media dubbed the Grail Trail, because the story was um, in some of the later Arthurian romances that the Holy Grail was hidden somewhere near Glastonbury. And everyone had just kind of concentrated on that. But I thought, let's go back to look at the very earliest writings about the Holy Grail in the Middle Ages. Now, the oldest of them, these days, I mean, I'm doing this back in the early 90s. So we're still before the age of the Internet. So today I can go online and incredibly most ancient documents and and records have been, uh, uh, you know, been uploaded and you can read through them from the comfort of your own home. But then it was all going around libraries, the British Museum and all sorts of things trying to find these old documents and then finding that no one had done a translation. So then having to find somebody who could translate from various ancient dialects and medieval French, old English, Latin, you name it. Um, so cutting a long story short, I managed to find out that the earliest reference to the Grail refers to it being found by, this is the King Arthur stories of it, being found in a place called the White Castle in the White Town. And no one ever describes where this is, and as far as I know at that point nobody had even bothered to even think there might be such a place. But I discovered in central England, not the southwest where everybody else was looking, but in central England, there is a place called the White Town. It's today called Whittington, which comes basically, which is the Middle English Whittington, meaning White Town. And uh, m- amazingly, in this White Town, Whittington, it's about—I um, don't know—it's about 40 or 50 miles to the west of the very central point in England. I suppose you're basically trying to find it. You go there, Whittington, in the middle of this small town of Whittington, a village really, there is this old ruined castle, Whittington Castle, known locally and has been known locally for years as the White Castle. And the reason it's called that is because it's built from light-coloured limestone, whereas most of the castles in that area are from red-coloured sandstone. So it was known as the... So we've got a white castle in a white town. And it's the only place in England that I know, or in Britain anywhere, that has got that name. Um, And this is where we are told in the oldest Arthurian stories about the Grail, which is where the Percival finds the Grail and where eventually Merlin puts it back and where it's kept by a family and handed on from generation to generation. So I thought... Wow, these people were actually basing this story on it, might have been all imagination, but they're basing the setting on a real place. So I went there and started researching all the historical documentation, and to my absolute um, astonishment, discovered that in around about the year 13, uh, about the year 1200, there was a family called the Peverells. That lived at Whittington Castle, the White Castle who actually claimed to have possessed the Holy Grail and there was, uh, there was one or two ancient uh, sorry, uh, one or two medieval uh, stories written about this family surviving from that time talking about how they proudly pose- pose- um, professed to possess the Holy Grail so I'm thinking well this is exactly the time that the first Arthurian grail romances were written, around 1200, and I'm thinking whoever it is that wrote this story, okay, we have a pre-existing account of Mary Magdalene bringing this chalice to Britain, but the first people to actually say that Arthur has got anything to do with it, and Arthur is supposed to have existed 500 years after the time of Jesus, um, but but the first people to... reference Arthur in connection with this, are clearly basing the story on a real family who claim to have possessed a holy grail at this white castle in the white town. And what really convinced me that this was genuine, rather than some people just jumping on an already existing bandwagon, is because the cup that they claim to have possessed isn't the cup of Jesus at the Last Supper, but the chalice of Magdalene. So I was convinced that these people had got something during the Middle Ages that they really believed was the cup that Mary Magdalene collected Jesus' blood in and that this story inspired the grail romances that we know today.
1: Wow. So um, does the same family still hold the same... um, do they hold land in that particular area?
2: Well, Whittington Castle today is a ruin. It's actually quite well preserved in parts. It's not all ruined. There's, there's some parts of it, um, towers and that, that are still um, there. It's open to the public. They, there's parts of it that can be used today for receptions for weddings. Uh, there's a bookshop. There's a cafe. So you can actually go in part of it now. And they, People even have sort of ghost hunts there. Um, so it's it's quite a popular place to go but a lot of it is in ruin um, but it's actually owned, it's publicly owned today, now, what about the Peveril family, what did happen to them they've got this item that they believe is the Holy Grail, that I'm convinced is at least what started the Arthurian Grail legend so, you know did, did if they if they had a cup whatever it was, what happened to it well, astonishingly These people continued to live in the area, although they lost possession of the castle during the period of the War of the Roses, I believe. Um, But the the, the Peveril family continued to live in the area, and the direct descendant, father, son, father, son, all the way down, uh, the last of them was still living in the area in the mid-1800s, and his name was Thomas Wright, because he he wasn't called Peveril anymore because... At some point, one of the members of the family had got no sons, and so that the, the, the head of the family had become a woman and she'd married, and the, the family name had changed. This man, Thomas Wright, was the direct descendant of the Peverells, and he lived a few miles away from the castle. And incredibly, he was a, an author. He became, uh, he had written quite a lot. He was a historian, or, or what they called in the 19th century, an antiquarian a dabbler in archaeology, history, and all sorts of ancient um, mysteries. So he was, you know, quite a character involved in the, in, the, in the investigation of historical mysteries himself. And he was fascinated by the King Arthur legend. Um, but in his books, what's most remarkable is he claims that he still possessed the cup that his ancestors believed was the Holy Grail, the Chalice of Magdalene. And uh-huh. a lot of people who were his contemporaries tended to laugh at him. They thought he was something of an eccentric and didn't believe for one minute that what he had was the Holy Grail. But what I'd been able to do was to show that it might not have been anything to do with Jesus or Mary Magdalene, but certainly his ancestors had possessed something which seemed to have inspired the Grail romances. So I took, a lot more, I took him a lot more seriously than his contemporaries. But uh-huh. when he, before he died, because he had no children himself to hand it on to, he decided to hide the cup. And once again, I come across a case where somebody has hidden something, and they've left a deliberate series of clues as to where it where it is. Um, just like I had in the Green Stone all those years earlier. But in this case, there was nothing paranormal going on. This was simply a an artifact that was hidden, and somebody had deliberately left a series of clues. Now, why did he do that? Why didn't he just leave it in a bank vault or something? Well, I think there was a, something of a fad in Victorian times for, uh, for historians and people with an interest in antiquities to get hold of an item that was quite precious and to hide it and then deliberately leave a series of clues as to where it was as a kind of epitaph, um, usually in a a book full of puzzles and mysteries. Um, And I think this is why he did it. Also, he perhaps saw himself as some kind of latter-day Merlin, that people would be forever kind of uh, enamoured by this, Uh, his um, his cunning and and people would be trying to solve these clues for years and it would give him some kind of immortality but for whatever reason he hid this cup and then he uh, left uh, a a series of clues as to where this was to be found now um, the story is quite a long one but the bottom line is that one of the clues he left was a stained glass window that he designed and then paid to have installed in his local church at a place called Hodnet, which is about um, uh, which is a few miles away from Whittington. And that, it seems, was where he said the clues were. Now a number of people had looked at this paint at, at this stained glass window and, and had never come across you know, come to any conclusion as to where this cup might be hidden. I don't think most of them even believe there were any clues in it. In fact, the, 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 the vicar, or what they call an English priest, the vicar of the church, when I went there, was having none of it. Nah, there's no clues here. It's just silly. You know, it's just just a load of old nonsense. But when I looked at that stained glass window, I was immediately struck by something which I thought, well, how come no one's noticed this before? And this is years before the Da Vinci Code came out, and people were thinking in terms of Mary Magdalene may have been uh, the person at the Last Supper who had been mistaken as the uh, Jesus' disciple St. John. Um, In the window that is depicted the four Gospel writers, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. John. Now, All all three of them are holding the books in their hands that they're supposed to have written, the Gospels in the the Bible. But the John figure is holding a chalice, a golden chalice, very similar to how the Chalice of Magdalene was depicted in Victorian paintings. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute. Is that really John? And the closer I looked, I thought, hold on, all the other three figures are bearded John has not got a beard. In fact, he looks decidedly effeminate. He's got long hair. And when you look close, you can see he's even got breasts. And I suddenly realized that this is a thinly disguised Mary Magdalene. Now, some people have said to me since, oh, well, St. John in the Gospel is often depicted as being rather effeminate. Well, yeah, but breasts? And then the other thing they said is John is sometimes shown with a chalice. No, John is only ever shown with with a chalice with a serpent coming out of it because of a story about him in early Christian tradition that he was once being poisoned by somebody and God made the poison come out the cup in the form of a serpent. There is no serpent in this chalice. This just looks like the depictions of the chalice of Magdalene. So there I'm saying, right in full view of the church, and the, one of the, 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 the modern vicar of the church, a lady who is far more open to uh, historical mysteries, said to me, when I, when, I was, when I gave a talk about it at a church one, she said, you know, I've been looking at that image for years, and I've never once thought it's a woman, but now you see it, it can't be anything other than a woman. So, Thomas Wright seems to have Mary Magdalene with her chalice depicted in this stained glass window. Now, right above the four Gospel writers in the window is depicted the symbol representing their Gospels, a bull, a lion, an angel, and an eagle. And it was only later that I was doing research and found out that in some caves nearby, in a hillside, a series of artificial tunnels and an artificial grotto constructed in the middle of this hillside, until recently, there were four statues there of a bull, a lion, an angel, and an eagle. Big, big statues, stone statues. Um, two of them still remain to be there, are there to be seen today. And I thought, this could be referring to those statues. And because the figure above the John Mary Magdalene image was an eagle, I thought, maybe... The cup could be hidden somewhere inside the eagle statue, so I went to these caves at the time they were completely overgrown and and I had to hack my way through i mean I only knew about the, the these statues because i 'd read about it in a book. I had to hack my way through brambles and so on to get into these caves and there in the the the, the eagle statue was still there, but it was all broken, and when I read through old newspaper reports I was gutted to discover that in 1920 a local businessman had m- known about these statues and he wanted to have them moved to put in his garden and yeah. he was trying to get them moved out of the caves and the, the tackle that he was trying to hoist them up with broke and the eagle statue had, had, had smashed open and its base had broken open and inside this concrete base they had found a hollow. And in the hollow, is described in this newspaper article, they were most intrigued to find a small stone cub. They had no idea why it was there, but thought it was very interesting all the same. I thought, I've gone this far and somebody's found it in 1920, doesn't know what it is, have they thrown it away? So what I did then, okay, what did I do then? I thought, well, that's it. Um, but at least I know that there was some item that Thomas Wright believed was the cup. He really did have something at the end of his trail of clues. And perhaps and this is why it's obviously very likely to have been the same item that had been handed down through generations of his family. So... I thought, okay, maybe I can find out what happened to this cup. Did this guy just throw it away? Eventually, I managed to trace uh, this guy. His name was Walter Langham's great-great granddaughter, Victoria, and she lived in um, a place called Rugby, um, not far from central England, not far from Birmingham, in the centre of England, and. When I got in touch with her, I said, your great, great, your great grandfather found this cup. Have you any idea what happened to it? She said, you know something, you know, we kept it in the family. I said, really? She said, well, we didn't know what it was. Um, As far as we know, it could be some old, I don't know, Victorian memento or something. Uh, But we've kept it. I think it's in our attic somewhere. I said, can I come and see it? And at this point, I didn't tell her anything about Holy Grails or anything. I just said, i would read about her grandfather, fi- great-grandfather finding this thing. Could I have a look at it? Yeah, come round, she said. So I went there, and she took me up into the attic. And literally, she, there was all this old junk in there, and there was all old things tied up with newspaper and stuff. And wrapped up in old, I think it was 19... 19- 60s newspaper or something some old yellow newspaper she opened it up and there was this cup and when I looked at it I thought wow that just looks like an egg cup I mean it was about I'd say 3 inch, 4 inches high about uh, 2 inches wide it had a a, a base and a kind of stem rather a thick stem and if you imagine an egg cup but much... Thicker than than a, an egg cup's quite Thin but you imagine a thick version of that That's what it looked like and it was Made from green um, Variegated stone of different uh, g- Colours of green um, And I thought wow I mean this, Could this really Be the, the cup that Belonged to Mary Magdalene that once held The yeah. blood of Jesus well maybe Not but certainly was a cup that had been in the possession of this family that believed it was a holy relic. And I took it, I asked her, I said, do you mind if I take this to the British Museum to see what they think? She, I mean, she was just thinking there was a fuss about nothing. She thought it was a Victorian mustard pot or something. So I took it to the, to the, to the, I took it to the British Museum and I didn't go up to them and said, you know, is this a grail or what? I didn't mention grails. I didn't mention how it was found. I just said, this unusual item has been found under unusual conditions. Could you perhaps suggest what it might be? I didn't give any clues other than that. And after looking at it for about five or ten minutes, um, they said, it looks to be a Roman scent jar. Number one, that is exactly what Mary Magdalene's chalice is supposed to be. The word chalice is too grand a title, really, for something which is just a cup. It's because of the way it was portrayed in later paintings as looking like a chalice. But, okay, it's a Roman scent jar. That's exactly what the chalice of Magdalene was supposed to be. I said, what's it made of? They said, "Uh, onyx, green alabaster. Again, the Bible actually tells us that a scent jar is made of alabaster. So two strikes. And then I said, well, you, you say it's a Roman scent jar. Why? She said, well, come with us." And they took me to one of the galleries where there were a number of Roman scent jars on display. And a lot of them looked exactly the same. Different sizes, but exactly the same kind of thing. There was no doubt that their analysis was correct. And they, sh- they said this would once have had a lid on it. And they showed me the ones in the displays which actually had lids on them. So it it was a Roman scent jar. It was made of the right stuff. And I said, could you put a date on it? And they said, well, that's going to be very difficult. But looking at the thickness of the stem, the wear and tear, blah, 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 I would guess it would probably be first century. That's exactly when Mary, Magdalene and Jesus are supposed to have lived. And the most astonishing thing was when eventually the stone was analysed to find that it had come from a quarry in what is now Israel. It came from the right place, the right time, was the right item, and was made of the right stuff, to have actually been something that belonged to Mary Magdalene. I mean, I was just gobsmacked at all this. So... That's pretty much where, where it ended up. We couldn't prove you. I mean, this hadn't been found in situ, as they call it. You, you haven't been dug out the ground so archaeologists could work out exactly how long it had been there. But from all the circumstantial evidence, I really did seem to have a cup that had certainly started the King Arthur grail romance, but may actually have once really belonged to Mary Magdalene. So it seems. I had found the Holy Grail and then all hell broke loose.
1: Yeah, uh, I assume it didn't go back to the attic.
2: No. Um, what happened, first of all, is it stayed with this family. Um, I wrote a book about this, about the Holy Grail. And I've been just, I just wrote a book about the Holy Grail and the history of it and everything. And this bit about the finding of the, of, 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 of the cup kind of came towards the end of all this, really. I've been looking into the Grail legend um, and the King Arthur legend simultaneously. And when the book was published that included this find in it, which came out in England, uh, it was entitled The Search for the Grail. When it was published in America, they changed the title to The Chalice of Magdalene, which I assume is the version of the book you have. But um, it's pretty much the same. Uh, When The Search for the Grail book came out in Britain, it was published by uh, Random House, so it got quite a lot of coverage, there was very good publicity um, I mean, the the, the publishing machine just went into overdrive there was like, nearly every national newspaper in this country was covering it, it even ended up in Newsweek in the States, I mean it was everywhere, it was uh, the Catholic countries in particular, like Italy and Spain, Mexico, they were going mad about this, you know, oh man finds ground, man finds ground, Um and then, because of all this, the people that had it were being inundated with reporters, journalists turning up at their doors at all hours of the day and night. And it just so happened that they, the family, that the lady and her, her husband and their family, were involved in the local local politics, and their uh, political opponents were making a lot of um, thing about this. Oh, yeah, you claim to have the holy grail. Yeah, yeah, yeah as if it it was working out quite detrimental for them so they basically said to me Graham look you can have this cup you can keep it it's worth nothing to us we don't believe it's the other grail we think it's some kind of mustard pot we don't care you can have it but on the proviso that people come to you and they leave us alone and so they gave it to me and I kept it Um, and I've actually still got it until this day Uh, they didn't want it um, and of course after well, they didn't know it at their house and people knew that I had it they were left alone so that suited them um, but the publicity kicks off and then this is when the Pope gets involved the people who actually owned the property on which the, um, which the w- where the cup was actually found in this cave in the 1920s Uh, It's called Hawkstone Park. It's a golfing resort. There's a hotel, a golf course, and then there's this um, kind of cliff, this big hill with cliffs in the centre of it, uh, almost like a mesa, I suppose, but of white cliffs with trees all over it. Um, And it's there that these caves where the cup was discovered in the 1920s is. The people who owned this, these really rich hoteliers, uh, suddenly thought, wow, we can probably um, turn this into some kind of shrine for Catholics to come to. I think they were being a bit optimistic there. But they basically shut the hotel down, they shut down the golf course, and they started work immediately building some kind of um, almost like theme park, if you like, you know, uh, turnstiles where people would pay to go in. They were putting greetings up and and bars all around these uh, caves and they were going to put a little grotto in there. And they got in touch with me, and they're some of the richest people in, in the hotel business in the world. Um, and they invited me to go to one of their big hotels in London, um, and were offering to buy this thing. And I thought, no, I'm not selling this thing. It's, I mean, it's, I said no. But you can have it on, per, you can have it on permanent loan and put it on display if you want. And that's kind of like, yeah, yeah, fine. They happened to own a big newspaper in Britain at the time that had a major kind of four-page spread all about the fact that the Grail was going to be on display at 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 their place in central England. And the Italian press took up on this and decided to do a feature about what other people think about this man in England finding the Grail. So they went round, and what was happening is that there was churches, cathedrals, and abbeys all over the Catholic world, all saying, this guy in England can't have the Holy Grail. We've got it. We've had it here for ages. And there was a real big fuss going on about which one was the real grail. So some journalists in Italy went to the Vatican and said, OK, there's these grails coming up all over the place. People haven't, you know, a load of churches throughout the world were coming forward saying, no, we've got it. People had never claimed to have said that before. Um were saying, we've got the Holy Grail, this guy in England hasn't got it. And so they then said, okay, this was the announcement from the Vatican. His Holiness, this was John Paul II back in the 92, I think this was, or 91, uh, 1991. Uh, His Holiness, the Pope, is considering all these claims. He's reading the book. Now he was Polish, and my book had been published in Polish, so I assume he read it in Polish. Um, he's reading the book by the British author who claims to have the Grail, and he will make an announcement at the end of the week. How they knew the Pope would be able to make a decision in three or four days, I have absolutely no idea. But on a Friday afternoon, it's traditional for the Pope, or was then, for him to come out onto the balcony overlooking St Peter's Square and make various pronouncements. And that Friday, he came out onto the... Uh, the balcony overlooking St. Peter's Square, holding a copy of my book in his hands. I've got a photograph of that somewhere, waving this copy of my book in his hands, and basically what he said was, none of these claims are real because we've got it in the Vatican. Now that was the first time I know that the Vatican ever claimed that they had the Holy Grail. They never produced it as proof, but that was the end of this idea of thousands of Catholics coming to this grotto, this shrine that these hoteliers were opening in the centre of England. So suddenly they just abandoned the whole thing, turned it back into a golf course, and, 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 and gave me back the cup that was going to be on display. Um, and, and, but then after, the, um, the, the whole thing kind of pretty much died down, and, and and that was the end of that. And I kick the cup to this day.
1: Well, I think it's in good hands. Uh, you're not trying to make money out of it, for sure. And, you know, and again, his, history has a way of preserving the things that need to be preserved in, in strange fashions. Often. Look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, you know, they're preserved. And, you know, the reality is, it's It's a matter of faith, what is the Holy grail not a matter of of proof or carbon dating or anything like that it's It's what you believe, so I think you're safe I think it's very safe with you um well i mean nothing i
2: mean, nothing, that, I, mean I've, I have nothing weird happened around it. I have drank from it and I'm still alive. I look fairly young, so <laughs> who knows <laughs>
1: Well, that wasn't the purpose of the Grail. I mean, I mean, it, th- those things did conceivably happen around these objects, but has more to do with belief, I, I and faith, I believe, than 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 anything else. And you know, if you believe it can do something, and you believe hard enough, it most probably will happen. And I think one of the amazing things about all of your books actually, is that the research that you put into them is phenomenal. We don't have time today, but you have done a magnificent job um, in, in the Grail book, in, in the Magdalene um, book, of, of tracing who King Arthur actually was. And for anybody who's, who's in any way curious about King Arthur, you've, you, you've got him pegged. And, and down to the point that, that Arthur was actually a title, not necessarily a name. And I, I think your book is phenomenal with, with the way you, you, you went back and said, okay, did King Arthur exist and, and could the grail quest have come out of it? Is this a real story or is it just a story that's been passed down through time? And you historically figured out who he was and his name wasn't Arthur.
2: Which Yeah, I mean, different. I thought, I mean, in, in order for the Grail to have any kind of um, historicity in the, during the Middle Ages, you've obviously got to look into the King Arthur story. I mean, was he a real character or was he just made up? And clearly the King Arthur that was written about by the romantic writers of the Middle Ages is fiction. You know, the man who fights dragons, rescues damsels in distress and all that sort of thing. But what is interesting, I mean these stories were composed during the 1100s to begin with but they set Arthur much earlier, 600 years earlier around the year 500 and that time Britain um, the, the Roman Empire had just collapsed, the Roman legions had left Britain um, this country had fallen into a state of virtual anarchy with separate tribal kingdoms feuding between themselves and um It's this period that Arthur is set, and he is said to have been a figure who united these warring tribes to repel new invaders. Um, Most people think that the Anglo-Saxons are the original Britons. They're not. The Anglo-Saxons came from Germany uh, around 500 AD and invaded um, Celtic Britain, which had been um, the people that were here during the Roman period and before. And it was King Arthur, or this chieftain Arthur, who united the various tribes to help repel the Anglo-Saxon invasion. And this occurred, according to the oldest stories, uh, around between 500 and 530 AD, where he managed to repel the Anglo-Saxons, but once he died... Unity fell apart, and the Anglo-Saxons eventually invaded all of what is now England, Angleland, England named after them. So us English are actually invaders. The native Britons were driven into what is now Wales, and that's where the Celts are now. They're the native Britons. They speak a completely different language, Welsh, which derives from Brythonic, the language spoken throughout Britain at the time. Now, this King Arthur was then he would have been like, if he had lived around 500 AD, he would have been a Roman style soldier, not a person with um, heavy plate armour, like the knights in shining armour in the Arthurian story, that comes much later. He wouldn't have fought with a great big broadsword, but with a shorter thrusting sword called either a gladius, gladius, or a Sparta, like a shorter cavalry sword. Um, the where he would have lived, he wouldn't have lived in a huge, cold Gothic castle of the Middle Ages his fortifications would have been more Roman style um, uh, wooden stockades and the palace wouldn't have been a castle, it would have been more like a Roman villa, so you're talking about a very different kind of Arthur to the one we imagine, but the reason why he is portrayed as like a medieval knight, is that during the Middle Ages People didn't know what people were dressed like and looked like and lived like hundreds of years earlier. So they tended to set stories of the ancient world in their modern context. That's why medieval paintings very often depict the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion as dressed in armour like they would have done in the Middle Ages, because they had no idea how Romans were dressed. It's only more recently we have discovered this. So this kind of putting Arthur in a medieval context and then adding fantastic stories to it to make the stories sell is one of the reasons why people have thought well, no, Arthur wasn't real but when you look into the historical documentation that still survives it's rare, but there is some of it that still exists in places like the British Library you find that well before the Arthurian romances are written in the Middle Ages closer to the period the real Arthur is thought to have lived there are accounts of a man called Arthur who united the Britons at exactly the time that the King Arthur of the Romances did. Now, various historians have tried to find out if this man was real and locate him, and they failed. There are plenty of genealogies, in other words, family trees written during what was the Dark Ages, the period after the collapse of the Roman Empire, uh, There's these various documentations written telling us who ruled where, And none of these people were called Arthur. But I discovered that there was a book written by a British monk called Nennius within about 20 years of the time that the historical Arthur was supposed to have died. So you've got a man who's writing at the time. Well, he would have been, when he was younger, he would have been alive at the time that Arthur had ruled Britain, if Arthur really did exist. Now, he writes in his book called On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain, He, and his book still survives in the uh, British Library in London, he refers to various chieftains of Britain, um, and he refers to one of them that seems to have power over all the others, the leader. Now, he refers to these people by name, but very often he refers to them by their title. And many people in Dark Age Britain, many Celtic chieftains, were given names of animals as honorific titles, uh, an animal that somehow represented their prowess, like if you were cunning, you were a fox, um, and so on. And he refers to various chieftains by these battle names, these honorific animal titles. And he was writing in Latin because he's a monk, and he refers to this one chieftain, this person who seems to be holding the rest together and leading them as a kind of generalissimo, a sort of chief high king, he refers to him as Ursus which is Latin for the bear, so his title is the bear, what I've suddenly realised one day because it's still preserved in modern Welsh, is the word for a bear is arth, A-R-T-H And this was the same in Brythonic, the language spoken by ordinary people in Britain at the time Arthur is thought to have lived, around 500 AD. And the actual Arthur in Brythonic means the bear. So the name Arthur isn't a name at all. It is the title of somebody. Once I realized that Arthur was a title and not the man's real name, I began to realize why no one had ever found out who he was. And by looking through the genealogies, I found the name of the man that Gildas the monk refers to as the bear, and his real name was Owen Fanguin. And I found out where he ruled from, this old Roman city in the centre of Britain called Viriconium, and it still exists today as a ruin. You can go there. That could have been the historical Camelot or the or the impregnable fortress that became the Camelot of later legend, and I even found out where the man was buried. So, yes, I was able to pull the whole thing apart, piece by piece, reassemble the jigsaw puzzle with the missing parts, and locate an historical King Arthur.
1: Well, well, I I just, I am so in awe of your research and, and the things that you have gone into, and while this book was great and and the Greenstone was great i i also urge everybody to read the wisdom keepers which is is my favorite book so far of those that you've written because it does go into um stonehenge and its purpose and and what it was used for and i think it's brilliantly written and it makes greater sense than any of the stuff that, that, that's around today and just out of curiosity because we are getting down here um, are you writing anything now?
2: Yes, I'm working on a book at the moment all about the latest discoveries I've made about the order of me and I the people who hid the Green Stone in other words, after 40 years I've gone back to that that should be out next spring but The Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge is the book that's just come out that's all about an investigation into what was Stonehenge really all about, that book you're talking about, and how oh, it yeah. ties up with the ancient druids and how people who used the stone circles were not only kind of living libraries of knowledge through generations when people have no form of writing, but there were also great healers that had developed cures for things that we don't even know how to cure today. So that's the Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge. The, the things I've been talking about, what people might find interesting, um, like The Green Stone and, and King Arthur and The and the Grail, all of these... Well, I tend to make quite a few short films myself and put them on my YouTube channel, which is Sorry. Graham Phillips Author, and there's a half-hour film I put together about The Green Stone, which includes interviews with people back in 1980. Uh, who were actually witnessing all these strange things going on, like Marion, the psychic lady, and Alan Beard. They're all there. They've long since passed because they're a lot older than us. So you can actually look at that video and see reconstructions of what we did, plus interviews with people who who have been dead for many years, unfortunately, but were witnesses at the time. And I've also put together a few uh, short films so that you see the sites and uh, I explain my the logic behind my research about the Holy grail and about the um, about the wisdom keepers of stonehenge um mm-hmm. King Arthur, loads of stuff but have a look at that it's Graham Phillips author my uh youtube channel
1: and um of course, all your books are on amazon and is, yeah, or is basically, if you just book
2: Graham well. Phillips, Amazon, you'll find my books there. I think I've I think I've written about seventeen.
1: You've written a lot of them. I recently got the one on Shakespeare, which I'm fascinated with too. So, so you will be back.
2: Yeah, he was. <laughs> I think Shakespeare is the one book I've I've written where I haven't gone in search of ancient artifacts or tombs and things. <laughs> that was <laughs> but, more about but, the the mystery of his private life.
1: Yeah. Um, and there's been great controversy on that. So, um, I haven't read it yet, but I did I did manage to find a copy of it and I got it. Um, so I, I highly recommend that, that everybody check out these books. They are um encyclopedic, they are educational, they are fascinating because he actually finds stuff he's looking for. So, um Well, if you want to see them
2: all in one place, if you go to my website, grahamphillips.net, that's grahamphillips.net, and you click there, Uh on the front page, you'll see all the covers of my books. You just click on those, and I've got a good few pages for each book online with all itchers of the places involved and i basically explain the whole books there so to get a general idea of what my books are about i'm not like some authors that well you've got to buy the book before you find out what it's about you can go <laughs> on my website click on one of the books and find out what it's all about and see all the see see the argument and all the evidence there all
1: oh, right not only that but your books are um i call them easy reads because they flow so easily and you're you're taken right into the story, so you're not you're not given it's not um, an academic work. It is a historical work for sure, but it's not it's not written in a dry way. It's it's written in a way that flows so easily that that they're easy to read and they're fun to read, and you keep going back and taking notes and saying, "Damn, I didn't know that." But um, it, your your writing style is is just so enjoyable to read that you do tend to sit and, and, you know, read until you're done, which is what's happened with me with all of your books. It's kind of like, well, I can't put it down now. I have to see where he's going to go next with this. And um, I have always been educated. I have always been amazed by what you have found. And it's so it's so refreshing that, you know, when you start to hunt for something, you actually find it. So, I can't wait to see, you know, what you're going to dig up next. But um, I do want to thank <laughs> no, you so we're, much.
2: We're about to start digging. Oh yeah!
1: Hey, I never thought of that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's fascinating, and of course, you live in an area that is so rich with history that it's it's fascinating in and of itself. Um, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. You have definitely uh, filled the two hours with so much information. It's profound, and um, I definitely am going to invite you back. I, I certainly hope you do come back and um, enrich us further. Um, you've given out your information. So are you going to be doing any um, conferences or anything like that in the in the near future?
2: Well, I've just done quite a few over the last few weeks. So over the winter, it is writing time. That's when I just sit down and do the boring bit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, it may be boring for you, but it certainly is fascinating for me. And, <laughs> and quite obviously, you thoroughly enjoy what you're you're doing because it does come across in everything you write. It's not dry at all. So I want to thank you again oh, thank for you being very here. Much. I'm glad. I, I, I look forward to your show with Mark when when he gets to, to be enlightened and educated. And um, thank everybody for listening, and good night now, everyone.